the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Everything in heaven is better. It's different in some ways, but it's better. It's just all around better. And we just trust that life is more glorious and wonderful. And we're all around the throne and we're worshiping Jesus. And there's no more crying and there's no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sin. It will be wonderful. It will be glorious. And knowing Christ as your Savior is the way that you experience that wonderful and glorious eternal future. We don't know everything about heaven. No one can. There are clues in the Bible, but there's no detailed description. But as Pastor Gary reminds you today, we must have faith that our eternal home is better than we know here on earth. We need to trust that what the Bible says is true and that God would create such a spectacular home for us that we can't even fathom it. One thing we do know, however, is how you can get there someday. By giving your life to Jesus, you can know what heaven is like. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 20, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Job wrote about the resurrection. David in Psalm 16, verses 9 through 10, he said, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Daniel said in Daniel 12, verse 2, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So there are many verses in the Old Testament that actually talk about the resurrection from the dead, but because the Sadducees did not believe in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures as reliable, authoritative, except for the first five books, they didn't believe in the, in the resurrection from the dead. And, and thus, you know, you, many of you have heard this, but that's why you can remember them, because they're so sad, you see. They had no hope in the resurrection of the dead. So they were the aristocratic group of Jews. Uh, the high priest of the Sanhedrin uh, was always a Sadducee. Um, and so that's this group here. Uh, asking Jesus this hypothetical and hypocritical question because they don't even believe uh, in what they're asking. Now, Jesus replies. And I think it's interesting here because he could have said to them, guys, you don't even believe in the resurrection, so why are you even asking me this ridiculous question? He doesn't use it as an opportunity to correct. He uses it as an opportunity to instruct. And we get the benefit of his instruction. 
Because what he's going to tell us here is something, in his response to them, he's basically going to tell us something about the age to come. He's going to talk here in terms of the kingdom age. And this applies to us. So we need to hear what he's saying here. Notice again, he says in verse 34, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, okay, in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. Now, in the margin of your Bible, some of you, if you want to mark down these verses, Mark 12, 24, and Matthew twenty two twenty nine, 29. Mark 12, 24, and Matthew twenty two twenty nine, And the reason I give you those two verses is because when Matthew and Mark record this conversation, this same story, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, both of them say that Jesus started the response by saying these words, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes on to say what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record here about angels and marriage and the age to come. But it's interesting because he first sets them straight by saying, the reason you're in error because you don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. And error emanates from a lack of understanding about the truth of scripture. All error, all theological, biblical, doctrinal error emanates from a lack of understanding what the scriptures have to say. So we need to know the whole counsel of God's word so we can be thoroughly equipped in our faith. These guys here, the Sadducees, just simply did not know the scriptures, and in large part because they didn't embrace or believe most of them. Okay, So that's what he's dealing with here. Now, what happens here is that Jesus then says that in that age, meaning the kingdom age, and I'll define that in a minute, will be like the angels. And what he says here is, we'll be like the angels in two ways, relationally, in that we will not marry, and eternally, in that we will not die. That's the comparison he makes here to angels. So there is the kingdom age to come, okay? When you and I die, as believers in Jesus, our spirit separates from our body, our body becomes dust again. Bible then says that one day we get a glorified body, So from the graves will arise, for Christians we're talking of, will rise a glorified body that is imperishable, similar to the body that Jesus had. We shall be like him. And uh, that glorified body uh, will never perish, never die, never decay again. Never get fat, never get old, never get any of that. All right? It's going to be a glorious day, right? Amen? Amen. If you didn't say amen, it's because you're too young (laughs) to appreciate that truth. But anyhow... um, He compares this to angels here. Uh, And in the kingdom age, which is when Christ returns and the saints will come and rule and reign with him, eternity looks like this, that we will be like the angels in, in these two ways, relationally and eternally. So the first thing that he compares us to is the idea of marriage. Because again, he's answering their question, like, well, whose wife will this woman be, seeing how she's been married to seven guys and she's outlived all seven guys? And he, he sets them straight. He says, first of all, there's not marriage like, like we think of it on earth. There won't be marriage in heaven. There will not be marriage in the age to come, okay, in the kingdom age. Now, that might be very depressing to some of you, and that might be a relief to some of you. I don't know. I don't really want to know. I don't want to ask for a show of hands on that one. Uh, but, but the truth is, there is no marriage in heaven. Now, you know, you will know each other, okay? We will know even as we are fully known. 
you know, sometimes people are concerned, well, I know my loved ones in heaven. Listen, think of heaven as magnified of everything that is pure and right and, and honorable here. I know there's not much now, but in terms of like what you know now, you're not going to be dumber then. All right. You're going to be more enlightened then. Okay. You're not, you're not just joyful a little bit then compared to here. You're more joyful. So everything is accentuated in heaven that is good and right and noble and true. So you know each other now, you will know each other then. But you will, if you're married now, you will not be in that kind of a relationship then because Jesus says we'll be like the angels and the angels aren't married. What he's basically saying is, look, when we get around the throne of God, we will not be known by any other status except children of God. That's it. We will only be known as God's children. You know how it is, some of you maybe who are single, and you know how maybe a few friends are getting together and like a few couple of married couples and you, and you feel kind of that a little bit of sense of awkwardness, you know, because, you know, here are these couples and then it's me and, and it's the awkwardness is on, you know, marital status. Or, you know, I, I hear from time to time couples maybe, for example, having trouble uh, getting pregnant and then they go to the park and, and then they see other young couples swinging their kids and it's painful. It's difficult because, you know, we identify with, are we single? Are we married? Do we have kids? Or are we not? You know, and, and those status kinds of things that are just the reality of way we identify ourselves can sometimes be awkward. On earth, it can be difficult. It can sometimes make you feel like odd man out or odd woman out, you know, and, and so that kind of connection is sometimes, you know, difficult on earth. All of that gets removed in heaven. That's one of the reasons why, you know, God is saying here, look, no marriage, no given in marriage. We're going to be like the angels. There's not going to be any status. It's all known as one kind of status. We are all children of God. That's why he says there in the middle of verse 36, they are God's children. They are God's children. That's how we will be known. And so we will relate to each other differently. You know, my wife now is always going to be my sister in Christ, now and then. Uh, But we won't be married the way that we, you know, enjoy marriage now. And neither will you if you're married. But we will be brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will be God's children. So relationally, very different. Uh, but then also eternally, he talks here about, um, in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Verse 36, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So when we're with the Lord, uh, we will be with him forever. We will not experience death again, and it will be this wonderful, eternal relationship that we will have with him around the throne. It'll be different. And I know it's hard to imagine that it is better different. You know, if you love your husband, you love your wife, and the ideas of heaven being different, and you're not married together. And so it's hard to imagine, you know, what will that relationship be like since we've known each other as husband and wife here? All I can say is that by faith we accept that everything in heaven is better. It's different in some ways, but it's better. It's just 
all around better. And we just trust that life is more glorious and wonderful. And we're all around the throne and we're worshiping Jesus. And there's no more crying and there's no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sin. It will be wonderful. It will be glorious. And knowing Christ as your savior is the way that you experience that wonderful and glorious eternal future. And that's what he describes here. So he imparts information to them, but it's also good stuff for us to understand. And then he says there at the end of his statement, he says in verse 37, in the account of the bush, the burning bush, the story of Moses, he said uh, that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Present tense, not, not past tense. By the time we get to the Genesis account of the burning bush with Moses, Jacob has been dead 198 years, Isaac has been dead 225 years, and Abraham has been dead 330 years. And God is not speaking to Moses saying, well, I once was the God of these guys, but he speaks in present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living forever with the Lord. So God is the God of the living. And, and so after he says all this, that's, that's when it's, it's great here. It's, it's very funny to, to think about these guys in verse 39. You know, they respond, well done. You gave it to him, Jesus. You know, you go. You go. You gave it to him, Jesus. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. I mean, he's just come through this whole series of these guys questioning his authority in the beginning of chapter 20, in the middle of chapter 20. He's like, who do you pay taxes to? And then the Sadducees are like, tell us this scenario here. And they don't even believe in the resurrection. And the whole thing, the whole time, all these guys have been put to shame because of the wonderful wisdom uh, of our Lord. So keep reading with me. Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? Okay, notice here, Jesus is going to turn the table on them. Like, all right, you you guys have have tried to, to test me here. Here's a test for you. How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Now, you might just, again, in the margin of your Bible, write, and maybe your footnotes say it. Yeah, mine does. Psalm 110. He's quote, Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110. Uh, psalm 110 is quoted more in the New Testament than any other psalm. And the Jews in Jesus' day accepted and uniformly agreed that Psalm 110 was a messianic passage that Psalm 110 pointed to the future Messiah. So that much they agreed with. So Jesus is going to quote from David what he wrote here in Psalm 110, and he's going to stretch their understanding, because here's what the Jews thought, and honestly, this is what the Jews even still believe today, those who don't accept that Jesus is Messiah. In Jesus' day, and a large number of Jews today as well, believed in and presently believe in that the Messiah will be genetically a descendant of King David. Okay, they, they agree to that. But what they believe is that he's strictly human. That Messiah is a human, strictly human, who is genetically descended from King David. So what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to get the folks to realize 
that the Messiah is not simply genetically a descendant here. He's wanting them to recognize not just the humanity of Messiah, but he's wanting them to realize the divinity of Messiah. That's why he quotes here, and David accurately reflects this. David is basically saying, yes, he's going to be a descendant of mine, but David calls him my Lord because David is ascribing honor and glory to his future Messiah by faith. Recognizing that though Messiah is a descendant of David, David is saying, though I am under him. So that's why Jesus quotes this. Why did David say, the Lord, and if you look in Psalm 110, verse 1, you don't need to turn there, but that first word, Lord, is all caps. It's the proper name of God. It's Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? He's saying to them, listen, Messiah is not just genetically a descendant of David. Messiah is over David because Messiah is divine. Messiah is God. And isn't this what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully divine. But they had limited him only to the idea of humanity. Remember when they, they mocked him and they said, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Is, and, and aren't his sisters here? They strictly saw him as somebody who was just human and they didn't recognize his divinity here. And he quotes this psalm to help them to realize from their own scriptures how it points to the fact that Messiah will not only be um, a descendant of King David, Uh, humanly speaking, but will be also divine as the Messiah. Well, verse 45 says that while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. You know, I just kind of keyed in on the verse 47 there, that they do it for a show. All this stuff, the flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces, and, you know, these long, lengthy prayers, and they were doing it all for a show. And Jesus can see right into their hearts, and so it's a challenge to us. Listen, you know, just be sincere and real in your relationship with the Lord. Don't try to impress. Don't try to do stuff for a show. Just be real and honest and true, and that's what God honors. Not all of this showy stuff. Uh, let me read through chapter 21, uh, because this is an important chapter. Uh, l- let me first address this whole thing with the widow's offering, and then we'll get into the rest of chapter 21 is about the signs of the end of the age, and so some prophetic stuff throughout chapter 21. But first, he says here in, in chapter 21 that as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. King James Bible says mites. The widow's might. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let me just, you can, if you want to turn back, you can, but I just want to read also Mark's account, only a couple of verses, back in Mark chapter 12, um, just so we can compare the two accounts and get the full stories. You know, th- that's why we have four Gospels, right? Because the different writers give us different information so we can get the, the whole story. And Mark chapter 12, verse 41, 
It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, two mites, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. So Mark's gospel says that Jesus was sitting down. Uh, Luke's gospel says that he looked up, so he put the two together. So Jesus has positioned himself somewhere near where the treasury is received. Uh, what would happen in those days is that as you would get closer to the temple there on, on the Mount of Jerusalem, you would have to pass through certain courtyards. First, you'd pass through the court of the Gentiles. Then you would come to another entrance and there would be a sign there that no Gentile can go past this without the possibility of death. They would limit the inner area of the courtyard just to the Jews. And then after the court of the Gentiles, you'd come to the court of the women. The women could not go further than the men in those days. So there was this kind of, you know, see it as like a couple of rings closer to the the temple itself. But in the court of the women were 13 coffers or treasury boxes or offering boxes. And each box had a specific designation. And I don't, I don't want to go into length about what each one was, but boxes eight through 13 were for free will offerings. And you could bring, you know, any amount uh, and drop them into one of those coffers, one of those treasury boxes. Jesus is sitting somewhere near these treasury boxes. They're in the court of the women. And he's watching as people give. That's that's very challenging, isn't it? The idea that Jesus watches us when we give. And uh, and he sees this dear woman. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us her name. The Bible doesn't even tell us her marital status. Um, Jesus knows this, and, and Jesus already comments on it, okay? So he, divinely understanding this, tells us she's a widow. And he also tells us she's put in everything. There's no other way we would know this. But here she comes with just a a couple of copper coins, and she puts both of those things in. Whereas other people were putting in their offerings, but in terms of the sacrifice, not nearly what this dear woman had put in, because she put everything she had to live on. You know, listen, generosity is not marked by the, it's not measured by the amount of money you give. It is measured by the sacrifice. That's, that's what the truth is. It, you know, God's not impressed by how much we give. What honors God is whether we give because it's just like fluff or we give because it's a matter of sacrifice. And there's something in the sacrifice that not only honors God, but pries us loose from the control that money often has in our lives. You know, some people, I don't at all want to be legalistic about giving. I think, you know, even the Bible says no one should give under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So no one should ever feel manipulated or have to give under compulsion. I just know in my own life that when I give, and again, I'm saying this as a personal reference point, okay, this, you don't have to be convicted by this at all. I just believe that when I give, when we give, when Tara and I give, and we do it because it hurts a little, it causes us to become more dependent on the Lord and more thankful. But if we just give kind of the skim off of the top, you know, how does that really, how does that really honor God? And how does that really ever create in us a continued dependency upon His faithfulness in our lives? There's something here about this woman that teaches us the real measure of generosity, not so much in the amount, 
but in the sacrifice. She put in all that she had. Uh, The others gave out of their wealth. She, out of her poverty, put in all uh, that she had. Then Jesus here, from verse 5 through the end of the chapter, launches into what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, This chapter here is also found even in more detail in Matthew chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ from His birth to His ministry, His death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to Himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in Him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But His death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know